You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and stolen lands of the Musqueam people. We are committed to ensuring Indigenous women's rights to health and safety and the equal opportunity to participate in a manner that recognizes and respects Indigenous cultures and traditions. Hello, and welcome back to Women's Health Interrupted Field Trip. I'm Dr. Marina Adshade. And I'm Demara Featherstone. Our next stop on this field trip is Global Health and Public Policy, where we will meet Dr. Veena Sriram. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. So today we are joined with the incredible Dr. Veena Sriram. Dr. Sriram's research sits at the intersection of global health, social science, and public policy. And specifically, Dr. Sriram focuses on understanding power and politics in health policy processes in mainly low and middle income countries. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here with both of you. What a pleasure. Looking at your research, I'm intrigued because, you know, in economics, we have our own ideas of what power is. Power essentially is the way that people resolve conflicts. I'm thinking that maybe you have a different approach. And so maybe we could start by that. You could talk about in your research, when you talk about power, what do you mean there? That's a great question, because when we think about power, I think we're all actually coming from the same core place, but we define it a bit differently We conceptualize it a bit differently, but I think ultimately you're right that it is about who is able to direct or influence the course of events. Now, I would differ a bit in it being only about conflicts. I think power can be something a little bit more diffuse, where, for example, say a group of people are getting together and trying to push through a policy objective that they might have. They may not win in that first instance. But there's something gained through the process of getting together and forming that network and building that capital that might actually make them more powerful in the long run. So I sort of see it as something a bit more of a process and something that's a bit diffuse and where you're gathering different sources of power and you could have short-term gains, you could have medium-term gains, you could have long-term gains. And it is something that's also, I think, quite rooted in history and context as well. So that's how I would think about power. Again, very loose and diffuse definition, but it encapsulates what you were referring to as well, Marina. That's interesting. So in economics, this is what we refer to as social capital. And that's a great concept. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I've actually never thought about social capital in the health context. So really informative. Yeah. And a lot of your papers have argued that if we don't understand the role of power in healthcare relationships, that we're missing a really critical concept to transform health policy and health systems. How do you think that power can impact interactions in the healthcare system from that individual patient-doctor relationship all the way to the global scale? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I may take a step back and just think about why is power important for us to understand when it comes to health? And I think part of it is where a lot of our research on health sits, which is typically sort of in the biomedical realm, right? Where we're really looking for these interventions and solutions that are addressing a particular issue or a particular problem. And those are absolutely critical, hugely important. I think where sometimes as health researchers, we tend to get stuck is we get frustrated with, well, why isn't this intervention or why isn't the solution gaining more traction in the policy sphere? Why aren't decision makers latching onto this? Why aren't they providing more resources to this issue? We know it works. 
And I think that's where we really need to start taking a broader view about and really incorporating an analysis of power into our understanding of these situations. So, for example, when it comes to policy, who's in charge of decision making? Who is driving those decision makers? What is driving them? What are the pressures that they face in their roles? Where is the funding coming from? What are their objectives as funders? And then going back further into history, I think a lot about the role of colonialism and how it's impacted decision-making structures, particularly in low- and middle-income countries. So I think that's where an understanding of power is really important. And then, of course, that's sort of upstream. Take that downstream, and then that goes directly into your question about how does power impact those interactions even in facilities between providers and patients. One way that I'll illustrate this is from my experience in India. So I grew up in India. I grew up in a family of doctors. So I say this with tremendous sympathy and affection for the community of medical professionals as well, because I'm not a doctor myself, but I am part of it in the sense that through family, my parents are doctors, grandfather, uncles and aunts and so on. But the problem in India is that doctors are very often seen as godlike, right? People put so much trust and faith into their medical professionals and medical professionals don't always on the other side of it recognize the power that they have in terms of how they're sort of directing the courses of people's lives through the interaction that they're having in a facility and how all of that is shaped by things like gender, caste, religion, class, ethnicity, so many different factors. So it starts there with what kind of quality of care is being given to that patient in that interaction. What kind of trust is that building in the health system? And you can expand that in so many different directions from there. And that has so many impacts, for example, on health outcomes and the kinds of disparities we see amongst especially marginalized communities all over the world. This is certainly not just an India-specific problem. Can I just follow up on that? Because I'm really interested in what you said about trust and about the intersection between power and trust. And I think that's a pretty obvious case where that could affect health outcomes, where if somebody doesn't trust the healthcare provider, the person who's giving them the instructions, go home, take these drugs, take these actions, change your lifestyle in this way, that could have a pretty big impact on the individuals. And if people who are marginalized are less trusting of the healthcare system, that could have a pretty significant impact on their health outcomes. Oh, absolutely. Trust is also clearly now an upstream issue. We've gone through this now with COVID, where we really see that trust is one of the reasons that some countries have done better in the response versus others. But it is something that's very so amorphous, right? Like, how do you build trust in populations of millions and millions of people? But clearly, it's essential as something that needs to be kind of a core principle of health systems. Yeah, wow. Just circling back to the last question, you you touched on how you think research on power needs to be more embedded in the healthcare system. I'm wondering if you could let us know a little bit about how research on this and also action on power can promote more transparent and equitable and fair healthcare systems, in your opinion. Yeah, and it's a great question. I would argue that I think anyone doing research on health has to engage with power, no matter what, especially if you're researching inequity, yeah, if you're researching inequities, disparities, you have to kind of put power at the center of that. I think for a long time, health researchers, we have tended to kind of see identity factors as variables. There's an excellent paper on this, again, in health affairs, where they talked about how seeing race, for example, as, as just a variable without really 
questioning and thinking about the role of racism in those inequities and in those disparities has really set us back in terms of addressing those challenges that we have with health inequity. Those are all questions of power at the end of the day in terms of who has power over decision making and why and and what that means for people's lives, for how long they live, for how healthy they are. No matter the kind of research we're doing, if it's in this realm of, of looking at inequity, I think we have to really wrestle with these questions of power in a more meaningful way. I think everyone implicitly knows it, but probably we have to make it explicit and sort of have those conversations openly so that we're actually kind of making more progress in these directions. Another thing I think that's really important, I try and do a lot of work at this sort of intersection of health and the social sciences. We really need to have more of that conversation between the pure public health side of it and the social sciences, because I think there's a lot that can be learned in having more conversations between these fields and disciplines. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. (laughs) In general, there's just not there's so little cross-disciplinary talk. So thank you for shedding some light on that. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's worth thinking a little bit about why that interdisciplinarity is important. I know we, in the research community, we say that a lot, and, and I think we all agree. And it's the moving it to that next step about how do we do this meaningfully? I think that tends to be kind of the sticky issue. And my sense of it is, is that I think social sciences can really bring in that level of critical analysis into thinking about these health challenges in the health space. And so they can be very valuable if they're incorporated. It's just that our funding structures are not often designed in such a way to encourage that kind of interdisciplinarity. I don't think it's very hard to imagine that individuals face a diversity of healthcare needs based on their socioeconomic status. So how much of those differences do you think are determined by power? I think it ultimately almost entirely comes down to power in terms of what types of services one is able to access, the kind of socioeconomic factors that have shaped their childhood and all the way up to being an adult, how socioeconomic factors shape and influence their health, their social lives, and then ultimately that has effects that we see that carry on to their children. And so I think power really is at every step of that. How much power, and and not just even in terms of how you can access services and the kind of treatment you receive, the quality of care that you're getting, the trust you have in the system. I think you can extend that argument also to kind of the power you have in shaping the politics of the place that you live in. For example, what's happening in the in the United States around reproductive rights, I think is a really good example of this, where you can clearly see how the politics of the moment have completely stripped away the entire sort of landscape of access to reproductive rights in half the country at least. What kind of power do you have in voting? How accessible is voting to you? Can you vote? What kind of information are you given? Do the candidates represent your viewpoints? I think all of these things are also reflections of power and ultimately do impact the kind of services that you're going to be able to receive on the other side of it. So in in short, I think power is, is impacting every level of this from your interactions at a facility all the way to the decisions that are being taken in state capitals and in national capitals. Extend that even further. Think about what's happening with access to vaccinations, the situation we just had with COVID vaccines and rich countries buying up more vaccines than poor countries. Those are also manifestations of power. So we kind of see it at global, national, subnational and local levels. I'm so fascinated that you have this macro approach 
right? Looking at the institutions of the country, looking at the distribution of power within countries on the large scale and how that has these impacts. Like, for example, when you think about colonization, which is also an interest of of mine, and how colonization has contributed to a, a very unequal distribution of power within countries. In terms of what you just said about the United States and the reproductive rights, and who really holds the power there to make those decisions? Is it in the hands of the voters? Or does the system such that so much power is given to the courts that it doesn't even really matter that, you know, more than half the country is supportive of of women's access to abortion rights. And so I think this is a really great example of what you mean here when you talk about power and who holds the power ultimately to make these decisions. Yeah, absolutely. It's another manifestation of that short-term, long-term trajectory of these kinds of policy debates. The reproductive rights question has been, I think, decades in the making in terms of politics, and, and we're seeing the outcomes of it, of strategies that were being made so many years ago taking place now. Even what you mentioned about colonialism, you'll often hear this argument of, oh, well, colonialism, for example, in this year is India's 75th year of independence from Britain. And you'll hear a lot of people say, it's been 75 years. We can't blame the British for everything. No doubt about it. Absolutely. But we can, I think, take a critical lens to seeing how certain institutions in countries like India, why they exist in the ways that they do. Why are they so centralized? Or why don't we have more transparency? Why does it clearly benefit some segments of the population and not others? You can go take that back to colonialism. And unless I think we clearly engage with those questions and wrestle with them and have debates about them, we can't imagine a better future because we're not dealing with the reasons for why we're in this situation that we're in. So so that's why I think delving into topics like colonialism and, and politics are really important because they give us the clarity of why we're in this moment. And the future of it's going to be hard, but at least we can hopefully come to an agreement about the sources of the problem. Yeah, and of course, as Canadians, we don't need to go particularly far <laughs> to see the long-reaching effects of colonization and how that's impacted institutions, the distribution of power, because there are so many health inequities in terms of the Indigenous population, even here in British Columbia. Absolutely. That's something, as someone new to Canada, I'm developing more of an understanding of the impacts of settler colonialism and and what that has meant for the Indigenous population here and for decision-making. And it's something I'm I'm learning a lot about as I'm spending more time here, and there are such clear linkages between the different types of colonialism, that there's settler colonialism, there's the type of colonialism that's happened in countries like India, and the core of it is so similar in that it's one community exercising this kind of absolute power over another, and the impacts of that are generational and something that we have to continue to engage with today. So finally... What do you think are the main takeaways for your research that you wish that women's health researchers should incorporate into their their research? I would like to see more of a feminist intersectional approach to thinking about policy processes. I think right now, the kind of work that we have on understanding health policy processes, we don't often take gender and intersectionality as sort of 
a core research question guiding why policy decisions are taken in the ways that they are. I think it's very important that we all follow the lead of researchers like Julia Smith at SFU and and others, and a whole host of women who are women scientists in low and middle income countries who've been asking these questions for decades are taking sort of a feminist approach to policy analysis. I think we should all learn from their experiences and apply a lot more of that into our own research in understanding what is the role of gender and intersectionality in the kinds of policy choices that are made and to really start to explicitly bring that piece of it out. I think the last thing I'd say is just to kind of build on that point that I mentioned about women scientists in low middle income countries having been doing this work for a long time. I think it would be great to see more connections being built between scientists in high income countries and scientists in low and middle income countries who are doing this work on intersectionality and gender. Because I think we all want to move in the same direction, but we need to kind of break down some of the silos a little bit more going forward. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And we are really excited to see where your research leads you in the future and and all the incredible work you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Sriram, for joining us on this journey and to all of our listeners who've been along for the ride. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network, the University of British Columbia, and everyone that has donated to the Women's Health Research Cluster for their support of this project. If you want to help transform women's health on a global scale, donate to the Women's Health Research Cluster today at www.womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. And if you like the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcast to be notified when episodes drop every second Wednesday of the month. And check out our show notes online to dig into some of the resources we talked about today. Until next time, I'm Demera. And I'm Marina. Thanks for joining us on this journey. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 